darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Rosaline Norton was an Australian artist who reveled in her public image as the Witch of King's Cross. But behind this public persona was a deep and serious practitioner of magic and mysticism. Rosemary Stilik and I will attempt to peer into the true nature of this visionary, as well as the pan-inspired imagery of her art, as we continue our look at Women of the Occult. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, and love under will. Welcome back, Rosemary. Thank you once again for having me here. And welcome, Rosaline Norton, who seems to be joining us in the form of a, her beloved thunderstorm. Absolutely, and as we go deeper into our explorations, the poetic magic of this moment will be felt and understood by our listeners. Yeah, this is a uh, yet again we have uh, uh, <laughs> incredible synchronicities kicking <laughs> in here. We were just getting set up and ready, and we have a thunderstorm kicking in. Mm-hmm. It had been sunny all day long, incredibly hot. <laughs> and, <laughs> and as soon as you set up those mics, there was the breaking of the thunder. Yeah, <laughs> and now the magnificent rain. And just to um, just really quickly to make a mention of that, we'll get into that once we speak about Rosaline's entrance into this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rosaline Norton, is. Uh, she was originally born in New Zealand. Correct? Yes, she was. She was born on the 2nd of October, 1917. So we are back in the 1917-ish uh, dimensions. <laughs> she was born into the world at around 4.30 in the morning at the explosion of a massive thunderstorm. (laughs) And she had expressed um, that the thunderstorm very much was the primal gateway that granted her visions to the other dimensions. It gave her that visceral animistic connection to the forces of life and the mysteries of the cosmos so mm-hmm. so how very apt <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, we uh, are very grateful to welcome rosaline norton here in our conversation through the rain uh she is sometimes referred to as roey or ro she herself sometimes referred to herself as thorn hmm. um so she went by many epithets mm-hmm as so many of our uh, subjects do. Yeah, <laughs> and it's interesting because, once again, you have an individual who ended up uh, reducing her identity to a mononym, mm-hmm. a single-word yeah. identity. Uh, I should say, I suppose, that uh, we're intentionally 
allowing the sound of the rain to join us. Hopefully it'll be soothing and not simply annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a synchronicity, we couldn't help but uh, want to uh, have it join us. Yeah, to welcome that um, elemental, watery power. Mm. Uh, even though Rosaline Norton herself was a Libra. Mm-hmm. As so many of these people are. <laughs> <laughs> Crowley himself is a Libra. <laughs> and, and interestingly enough, the fine gent, uh, Dr. Neville Drury, who wrote mm. her primary biography, was also a Libra, <laughs> uh, <laughs> turns as, out. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, um, Neville Drury's book, uh, Pan's Daughter, mm-hmm. is the one that we've been working from. Yes, and we are. We can present the entire title to the listener mm-hmm. if you are interested in um, seeking it out. Is it's very much what I would consider to be the primary source mm-hmm. of a biography on Rosaline Norton. Yeah, it's Pan's Daughter, The Magical World of Rosaline Norton. And it's interesting because if you hear the eloquence of Neville Drury speaking about Rosaline Norton, he sums up her work uh, very poetically by saying, Norton's esoteric beliefs, cosmology and visionary art are all closely intertwined. Her unique approach to the magical universe was inspired by the night side of magic, where darkness, mystery, and the clipotic world mingled with sex magic and gave birth to a magnetic image of dangerous beauty in her work. It's a very good way of putting it. Uh, if you get a chance to take a look at or vidi Rosaline Norton's work, <laughs> it's uh, really, really fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's uh, fantastical, mm-hmm. I guess you could say as well. It's um, lots of uh, very pan-related imagery. Yes. Lots of uh, um, what at the time, of course, this is, uh, we're looking at mainly the 50s when she was first um, uh, came to prominence mm-hmm. in the public eye. And uh, she was, of course, uh, viewed as doing demonic work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll get into a little bit of her timeline, but just to set the ambiance for the world that Rowie was facing, um, you had the 1940s and 50s, an extremely puritanical, highly Christianized Australian um, society that had a very suspicious relation to anything pagan-esque or, you know, witchy or demonic. There was a lot of satanic panic, I guess, (laughs) before the 80s. Um, And Rosaline's work was very much preoccupied with the mysteries of nature that were born of the night that were more dangerous and um, unpredictable, wild, primal. And she herself identified as the birth daughter of the ancient god Pan, as recognized in the, the Greek pantheon. She very much, in her um, sensibilities, was living the life of a witch that was deeply close to the earth, touched by the 
animism of the life force as it came through plants and animals and trees and the stars and the elements, etc. So her way of living very much can be seen as a precursor to the sort of neo-pagan revivalism that happened in the 1960s. She was just kind of ahead of herself with the earth children and the you know, getting back to the land. And I mean, yeah, there was the anecdote of her childhood where she would mm-hmm. uh, uh, refuse to sleep indoors and would sleep outside mm-hmm. in a tent and mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by all kinds of critters. And yeah, because um, interestingly, her family was very middle class, very, she, in in her adult years, spoke of her childhood as almost like onerously normal and boring. So, <laughs> As as you pointed out, one of the things she did to try to break the monotony was to pitch a tent in the backyard, and she did this for three years Hmm. as a child. She was around eight years old or something, and she would allow, for example, this massive orb spider to build its web inside the tent, and Mm -hmm. she would see it as her pet. As her creature. Protecting the, the doorway. <laughs> yeah, to keep people out, you know, like, no people allowed. So everybody's creeped out by the spider, except for Roy, of course. Mm-hmm. So she, and as you get to dive into the labyrinth of her life, you get to realize that she felt way more comfortable surrounded by all sorts of uh, pets and creatures and seemed to have a lot more of a laid-back comfort zone with the creepy crawly things that other people were freaked out by. But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, most of society uh, was more of a bane in her life than the things that other people kind of saw as noxious and, mm. you know, creepy. Yeah, I was interested to find that because uh, in addition to the um, uh, this book that we were working from mainly, I decided to put on a documentary that was just on free on YouTube on Rosaline Norton. And Amazing. I think it was actually, um, oh, I forget the exact title of it, but it's probably the first thing that comes up in a search or maybe the second. It's like a professionally shot documentary. Mm-hmm. It may vary. And I think you might have actually watched the same thing. Mm, I saw it. I saw it as well. It was really well done. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting to discover some of the, in- like a lot of the information was just sort of helpful to bring my mind back to the things that the book goes over. Mm-hmm. But there was also like, for instance, I don't remember in the book uh, it addressing her art teacher. Oh, um, yes. Rainer Hoff. Yes. Um Now, he's an interesting character because, well, if we were to kind of like maybe dive into some of the timeline of Rosaline that brings her to around 1934 when she enrolls as an art student and Mm -hmm. becomes a very, you know, intensely driven uh, student of Rainer Hoff. Mm -hmm. She had had a lot of trouble in her childhood when it came to being a good student. And this kind of uh, is a theme, this sort of anti-authority, mm-hmm. anti-authoritarian uh, spirit that carries through into her adult years. Um, she was known, if we were to look at her in childhood, to be very troublesome in school. She would disrupt other students. She would draw in class. And it's funny, I used to get into trouble in the same way. <laughs> when I was young. I so, definitely relate. Yeah. yeah, so she got expelled and... Um, 
her artistic talent was really encouraged when she joined the East City Technical College. And that's where Rainer Hoff taught. Now, he was a very renowned sculptor. And he himself faced a lot of backlash mm-hmm. for some of his uh, works that he was commissioned for by the public. And he, his answer to a lot of his work, uh, or a lot of the commissions, was to bring in extremely pagan imagery. Mm. This is probably one of the first times that Rosalie Norton saw another artist depict an image of Pan. Now, mm. I wish I can remember the name of this particular relief, but if you look up Rainer Hoff, there's this massive relief that he did in which all these gods are like merging into one mass of, of, of force, of life force. Yeah. And right kind of buried in the midst of all these extremely sensuous looking figures and gods and whatever is this horned god pan that just kind of jumps out um, mischievously and i can yeah. see how it would have had like a massive impact on her psyche mm-hmm. it's really cool looking stuff it reminds me very much of like the old ancient roman uh, mm-hmm. reliefs and what yes exactly and i mean when she was in school uh and seeing all this work and being taught by this renowned uh, teacher she also started reading on the subject of the occult through the western esoteric tradition so she started to educate herself as to you know the ancient forces of mm-hmm. the gods and goddesses of creation um it it also led her to explore themes of demonology as well as the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And she was very interested in uh, comparative religions. Yeah. So all of this started to brew in the cauldron of Rosaline Norton, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as one sort of ecosystem of, uh, of witchery. <laughs> yeah. And it does seem like uh, her, her in point for things like Kabbalah, for instance, mm-hmm would have been like that which was uh, brought forth by the Golden Dawn mm-hmm. system of Kabbalah and uh, definitely Aleister Crowley's writings has uh, Absolutely. I mean, them. and later she does end up having experienced Crowley's writings and was massively influenced by his uh, writings on sex magic, mm-hmm. which would get her in all sorts of um, fiery situations with <laughs> the press, but that's later to come. By 1935, though, so now, you know, we're moving past Rosaline as a child and she's in school and um, I guess this would be the equivalent of uh, college or something. Hmm. She met somebody named Beresford, I believe, Beresford Lionel Conroy that became her husband. It's a very dignified name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, unfortunately, uh, the efforts of World War II... It took all the husbands away, so hmm. he actually did enlist willingly into the army in 1940. Yeah, I get the sense that she was not very happy about that. She was that. not happy about that, and then strangely, you know, so she's like flailing, going, oh, what am I to do with my life with my husband overseas? It simultaneously uh, synchronized with her coming into contact with a magazine called Pertinent. Mm-hmm. The pertinent and um, how apt, right? <laughs> and in this particular publication, works were published like for the general public that uh, dealt with 
a lot of more what one would call more um, risque or daring subject matter of mind expansion, uh, welcoming you know exploratory poets, artists touching upon uncharted territory visually. So she fit right in mm-hmm. with this particular publication. And she did a few drawings for it that are hauntingly similar to the uh, sensibilities of Austin Osmond Spare mm. before her. So it's an interesting comparison. Now, is this the magazine that she was, She because I know she originally wrote a few short stories that caught some attention yeah and this was a little bit bef- like it was um she was at first picked up to be a writer mm-hmm. she didn't want to do that she didn't know i mean she well she didn't want to do it past a certain point she wanted to switch it over to her her art for a long time she actually sold her own original horror stories mm-hmm. <laughs> like these little shorts yeah um, and she thoroughly enjoyed this this was for a newspaper i believe that preceded the pertinent. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it was probably uh, when she had the opportunity to switch to something else mm-hmm. that would appreciate her art. Mm-hmm. That is something so she was... She wisely got into this particular, the, the newspaper beforehand. Um, she got in there uh, cunningly by acquiescing to uh, the job request of the newspaper to have somebody write. And then she slowly turned the tables and was like well you know I'm actually an artist I could do some drawings and uh, this did not go over well in time I mean she did do some drawings and despite the technical prowess exhibited thematically it was not what the newspaper was looking for and uh, it became like this unique blessing in disguise because that's what launched her into the pertinent and that is where she started meeting like-minded ex- mm-hmm. artists poets uh creators um and that's where she met her future lover um a poet in particular absolutely yes uh gavin greenlees so here we have a very intriguing parallel between Cameron, mm-hmm. right? And, uh... Yeah. Um, I mean, in this case, Gavin is 13 years her junior. Yes, he is. so, at first, it's not a romantic relationship. No, no. It's it... purely a working relationship mm-hmm. that eventually evolves into something much greater and that will intertwine both of them for years to come. It intertwines their destinies very mm. profoundly. He... Of his own accord, was identified as a very brilliant student with a profound future laying before him. He was very talented as a poet Mm -hmm. and was deeply influenced by the Surrealist movement. So he brought that sensibility into his expression through word. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of his musings uniquely um, dovetailed into Rosalind Norton's visions. They were very complementary to each other. Mm-hmm. So she was a very, you know, self-possessed alpha female, and he was much more of a sort of um, introspective, quiet, lithe, almost effeminate 
Yeah. Yeah, the documentary, for instance, describes him as a homosexual, but I think that's an oversimplification by Mm -hmm. far. I think he was just extremely fluid Mm -hmm. from what I'm sensing. We have the privilege to see that kind of language be applied in retrospect because, um, you know... Yeah, things aren't quite so black and white Exactly. So they had an extremely fascinating yin-yang dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that was around like... 1949, 1950, that they really, um, well, let's backtrack a bit, leading to 1949 and 50, they were dancing in each other's worlds. And um, eventually, the professional relationship became romantic. They do end up moving in together into like this dilapidated place at... um, I believe it's 179 Broham Street or something like that. It is sent- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of those uh, when you hear an Australian saying it, it's just kind of blurred into one yeah. syllable. Yeah. Now we're looking around the time of between 1951 and 1954, and this home pretty much is starting to be. Um, legendary it's officially within the district that becomes known to people as king's cross Mm -hmm. so we're leading to the mythos of who she becomes so she's in this home living with gavin it's literally crumbling around them makes me think of uh, some of the old victorian houses exactly that you know students live in and that sort of thing (laughs) it was very much that uh they took over the place the place was overrun with all sorts of uh, strange paraphernalia she had a sign above the front door which read welcome to the house of ghosts goblins werewolves vampires witches Wizards and poltergeists. (laughs) (laughs) That's comparable to Jack Parsons. Only atheists need apply. (laughs) And so there they are living in this place. You go inside. You've got Rosalie Norton's massive murals everywhere. She had this gigantic, larger-than-life depiction of Penn. All sorts of variously sized paintings around it strange um, curios everywhere, people gathering in and out, very much like like the parsonage it reminded me of. So so much, uh, you know, it reminds me also just the King's Cross area. Yes. uh, Reminds me of what Cameron would go on to, the kinds of places that she would go on to live in. That's right. Around and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, King's Cross was very much the red light district. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you lots had, of bohemian little cafes yeah. and things, but also yeah. a lot of crime and uh, um, prostitution and, and yeah. all the kinds of things you picture in a good uh, 1950s expose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but all of this was extremely riveting mm-hmm. to Roe. Like she loved the the frenetic, primal tension. Uh, That, of course, came out at night, which was her favorite time of day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the night. (laughs) Um, And the thing that was so cool about uh, these sort of people coming and going in this district was there was a definite vibe of searchers and iconoclasts and people that really wanted to shake the foundation of authority and and birth a new aeon. Again, Mm -hmm. the same uh, propensity toward freedom and 
envisioning uh, a liberated future. Now, Rosaline also, in in striving to survive, she was quite a hustler. She uh, she posed as an artist model for other artists uh, to make ends meet. She did all sorts of things to. Oh, I hear the police coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna <laughs> gonna be brought in on charges of vagrancy. <laughs> Oh, yes. Life imitating art. It's getting spooky now. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, thank you, Rosaline. You're quite the spark today in your spiritual presence. Um, so there they are. They're, they're doing their thing. They had these parties that would start at four in the afternoon. I think the documentary talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had... I really encourage people to see this documentary. She had all sorts of contemporaries that outlived her speaking about those times. It's fascinating. Yeah, it was really fascinating. It's nice because, you know, most of the time when you find a documentary of that type on that kind of subject matter, it's trash, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I was practically expecting. But uh, like, for instance, if you find any documentaries on Aleister Crowley, they're worse than useless. Yeah, there's <laughs> you know? just so much sensationalism. And yeah. the thing that's great about this particular offering is that you have a very intimate, personal insight into Rosaline Norton as a friend mm-hmm. and as a kindred artist and visionary. And somebody that was respected, yeah. and not just uh, thought of from the perspective of somebody who was trying to scapegoat her. Yes, Exactly. So there they are having their wild parties. They're, you know, wearing masks and costumes and uh, engaging, Very you know. Low, basically eyes wide shut on yeah. a budget. <laughs> <laughs> and engaging each other's imaginations and the wine is flowing and they're doing their thing. And one of the things that the police at the time were notorious for doing, and I think this was their way of trying to control uh, the gang culture, Mm-hmm. Um, in various neighborhoods like King's Cross. Um, I mean, that's the thing, too. Rosaline very clearly started to refer to herself as the Witch of King's Cross. She just took on this persona, which became a tourist attraction, which, you know, it flowered into this big bohemian festivity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really irked the authorities. And the way they used to come down on a lot of people that were perhaps a little too free for their liking was to just v- randomly raid houses and charge people for vagrancy. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't know what vagrancy is, essentially it's just like being accused of squatting. Mm-hmm. And, and, being, and not being able to afford to like take care of yourself and exactly. not having means. Which is such a ridiculous concept to think about. Like you say, it's I guess the the idea was to deal with gangs mm-hmm. and whatnot, but it's it really is kind of an excuse as a loophole to be able to yes. to throw that at who you like. I really think that it's also a form of discrimination against uh, artists and and. Uh, perhaps people living more creatively by frugal means. Yeah, I mean, how could it be anything but discrimination, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, if you're struggling, then that's just taking advantage of you when you have no means of fighting back, because it takes money to fight in the law courts and whatnot. Yes, and I mean, mercifully, so they had 24 hours to figure out their employment. That was the condition, which is just absurd. But as the cosmos willed it, they did come into contact with a gent who hired both Gavin and Rosaline to collaborate and create a book Mm -hmm. together. And 
that he would be their employer. Yeah, you know what? This is uh, I forgot about that. He mm-hmm. he showed up at the police station and asked yes. them. Uh, he basically wanted two people to employ. That's right. And he happened to get them, and they turned out to be these great artists. Yes, and this publisher's name is uh, Walter Glover. Mm-hmm. He was, um, I guess, he was kind of like this uh, visionary that had ideas about, uh, you know creating enchanting, exciting, riveting publications and saw Rowie and uh, Gavin as the proper, like, perfect candidates for mm-hmm. his uh, patronage. Yeah, it was great for him to see the potential there. Mm-hmm. And even, like, uh, took a huge chance on it. Because he did. He didn't actually have, which is so often the case in these kinds of situations when somebody's financing a project you kind of have to it's a sometimes it's a huge risk and you just Mm -hmm. dive in and and uh, assume everything's going to come together in the end Mm because that's the only way to get it done and so you know he he wasn't completely um unsavvy i mean he did have conditions set upon the circumstance of this contract where he essentially wanted to have primary ownership Mm -hmm. of the product created and uh, the particular rights therein. Mm -hmm. Um, So they created a bond that was win-win. There was mutual reverence for each other. And uh, by 1952, a book was produced, the result of which was The Art of Rosaline Norton. (laughs) And this brought Gavin's profound uh, writing with Rosaline's visions together. Mm Mm-hmm. It's amazing that uh, it's just titled The Art of Rosalie Norton and mm-hmm. has no mention of Gavin directly. I know. Directly. It's, um, it's, I, I think they were kind of coasting on, on the sort of sex appeal and the, you know, the enchantment mm-hmm. of Makes sense. The Witch of King's Cross. Because, yeah, going with that already existing mm-hmm. fame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, uh, they had already created this mythos around them by living in an unorthodox lifestyle, which became its own tourist industry. It's so bizarre. Mm. It, people gravitated to where they were. Yeah. Um, Gavin's poetry, though, did play a very important role in, in bringing this um, strong, additional esoteric energy to Rosaline's explorations. And um, she offered several paintings, a few of which were titled Black Magic. Um, another one was The Rights of Baron Samdi. Another one was Fohat, which mm-hmm. was her interpretation of a horned demon with a giant serpent for a penis. That would get <laughs> cause her some, uh, <laughs> that would be cause of some complaint later on. Yeah, I mean, that does become one of the bones of contention, no pun intended. (laughs) But yeah, um, it was a limited edition that was printed, 500 in total, on high-quality, refined, leather-bound. Very much in the spirit of Aleister Crowley's own publications. But the good news is, I say sarcastically, it was immediately banned. (laughs) Immediately, like... That's how you know it was good. Yeah. It was outright banned in um, New South Wales for obscenity. Now, here's the thing that's crazy. It 
it further created these ripples where it was forbidden to even enter the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what's so wild is that if we backtrack in England, we had just had the Witchcraft Act repealed in 1951. So this is very fresh. And in order to kind of get an idea of what Rosaline was up against, it'd be interesting for people to go back and to read about the repealing of the Witchcraft Act in 1951, mm-hmm. um, of which Gerald Gardner, you know, was a big sort of like part of that sort of um, ambiance. Yeah, and it's interesting that there's that interaction. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's a direct interaction, but mm-hmm. it's hard to say. But there, there is uh, Gerald Gardner's doing his thing mm-hmm. at the same time as all this is going on for Rosalie Norton. Mm-hmm. And um, she's certainly familiar with and conscious of him. Uh, yes. I, I don't know what his consciousness of her was, but... Uh, well, what's so interesting in retrospect, um, I mean, I know we sound like we're floating all over the place, but it's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. One of Gerald Gardner's primary high priestesses, Doreen Valiente, who's another interesting person we might want to explore. um, She, in retrospect, said she saw Rosaline Norton's work as very much in alignment with the Wiccan tradition in in England. And her particular flavor of, of witchiness was known as the goat road, hmm. the road of the goat witches that seemed really drawn to nature worship and the worship of Pan. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? <laughs> <laughs> and we know what R- Rowan would say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we know what her answer was. So picture that. So we've got this whole um, controversy around the lifting of the Witchcraft Act in 1951. In, this, in, in New South Wales... It wasn't lifted until 1971. Mm-hmm. So she's right in the void of all of this, um, feeling the shock and the reverberations of all this hyper-fundamentalist, puritanical energy of paranoia. She, a lot of her work uh, triggered the masses because she was diving into shadow work and the dark side in ways that were in alignment with the process of an alchemist during their individuation process. Mm-hmm. This is one of the coolest things about it, I think, is that uh, I feel that uh, one of the key ways uh, I look at Thelema, because this is one of those subjects that everybody mm-hmm. can argue over and have their own uh, p- opinion on and that sort of thing, but I see it as being a, one of the key aspects of it is the fact that with it, you are to look at both the mm-hmm. light side and the dark side and all things, this is where Pan comes in, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of totality, uh, the totality of everything. And so like being able to go into the dark side, being able to go into your own shadow mm-hmm. and, and be able to um, confront that. And uh, Yes, it reminds me of the caduceus of Mercury mm-hmm. with the white and black serpent intertwined and in the coming together of so-called opposites it's the engaging of the third mystery, the third aspect, which Jung speaks about mm-hmm. a lot, about how it's in the integration of our inner extremes of the yeah. shadow and light that we give birth to that mystery 
mm-hmm. that is the language of the soul that is very, very much the the chariot upon which the human soul evolves into its higher state. I think um, that it's a bit tangential for me to say so, but uh, there's uh, the association a lot of people have with Hegelian ideas as uh, with this idea that's not actually Hegelian. It's not actually Hegel, but is exactly to your mm-hmm. point, which, and Crowley really liked this idea as well, which is that you have the two opposites and by bringing them together, you move beyond them to a further, higher... the birth to the third aspect, Mm -hmm. which basically, um, I just, I resonate very deeply with that third aspect. And that is the place of the primal mystery that Rowe felt most comfortable in. Mm -hmm. So here we have this book, and, you know, the je ne sais quoi hits the fan. Everyone's freaking out. I think I know what. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, Mr. Glover does get charged with publishing obscene materials. And it's it's a pretty heavy-handed charge that he gets uh, slammed with. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't help his financial position. No, it it fully bankrupts him, actually, as a matter of fact. He goes 100% Yeah, which is such a shame, but... So, um, sadly, this did put a wedge in the, in the machinery. And I think the thing is, is for, for Roy and, and Gavin, well, for Roy especially, I think she was able to take this, and this is probably, you know, I, I want to say okay with her, mm-hmm. you know, because of her personality mm-hmm. uh, being that rebellious sort who wants to instigate. And um, I feel like her discovering that this was a, hitting a nerve caused her to want to poke the nerve harder. Well, it's interesting because that's precisely where it ended up going. So we move into the period of her life now around between 1955 and 1959. Mm-hmm. So all of this unfolded. Um, it was a sad outcome for everybody. But the thing that ended up happening was it now started to deepen that sort of archetypal Witch of King's Cross controversy. It really, there was this sort of stepping up, a stepping up of efforts on the part of authority, the authorities of the police, and uh, tabloid sensationalists, so the, the, the newspapers, journalists, mm-hmm. to in this almost ominous Salem witchcraft kind of way to join forces, you know, get your torches and pitchforks and everything and start marching down to wherever she is and just wreak havoc. Yeah. And this went on for years. Um, she became a newspaper fodder. Yeah. Very, very vehemently as well. And I mean, she wasn't, as much as the newspapers are just obviously out for whatever they can make a story out of and get Mm -hmm. attention for in their own right. She didn't seem to experience it as her being victimized. Quite the opposite. She Mm -hmm. spun, she went with their attempts at glamorizing this situation and she used that to her own uh, perceived benefit. Well, it's interesting. That's definitely where it evolved to. There were still people like swooping in and confiscating yeah. artwork from her exhibits and stuff and one of the sort of sparks on the witch's pile of wood there <laughs> mm-hmm. came in the form of a woman who was kind of unstable 
in her mental health around 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, this stranger, and I mean, this is just because of the notoriety of uh, Roe and, and and her lifestyle. Of course, it attracts the the moths to the candle flame, right? Mm-hmm. This individual went to the police, did not know Rosaline Norton, but this individual had delusions mm-hmm. that uh, inspired her to tell police that there was there were satanic black masses happening at the behest of Roy and Gavin at mm-hmm. their place, and that uh, she was you know, somehow in the know, as almost implying like she was there. Yeah, almost like she was a victim of this coven. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, of course, after investigation and all of the um, sort of maelstrom that it whipped up, it came to pass that it was a fabricated story. But, I mean, that did not take away the fact that Rosalie Norton had to face all these court situations and these charges. And Mm -hmm. Gavin and Rosaline, at one point, almost faced the threat of a 13-year jail sentence for being accused of buggery. (laughs) Buggery, quote-unquote. The abominable crime (laughs) of buggery. (laughs) (laughs) And these were based on some uh, confiscated photographs from one of the raids of Rosaline in compromising positions, one would say, um, Hmm. because of her own personal alternative lifestyle choices uh, that did reflect a a sensibility toward SM-type lifestyle. But, I mean, these apparently these photographs were in jest that were taken of her, like, getting the bumps during her birthday or something. Well, you know what? They were incredibly well lit. Right. And if they were... (laughs) (laughs) It couldn't have been like a spontaneous thing because you'd have to no. like stage those. I've Absolutely, seen them. and so they were. You know, they were having fun, and they were they were not just confiscated, but they were outright stolen yeah. because they there was no warrant for doing a search or anything like that. They the police came and arrested mm-hmm. them, and then when they were gone, mm-hmm. uh, these things were taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So clearly, it's like this was illegally searched and seized. So simultaneously with all this, now, in this particular span of time, and I'm so inspired by Rosaline Norton's um, will, because she did triumph over a lot of these charges and pointed out the harassment and discrimination she was being uh, leveled with. Yeah, they did not ultimately go to jail for 13 No, years. they did not. So... Around that time, because of all of this sort of notoriety and the sort of, they were a mesmerizing couple. Mm -hmm. They drew a lot of people to them. And one of them was this heavy hitter of a conductor, Sir Eugene Guzens. And I think he was actually like the one with the inspired idea of building the Sydney Opera House. At least that's, that's what right. it describes in this book. Yes, he was like the darling of every musical um, connoisseur's eye. You know, knighted by the Queen for his work in music. That's right. And so he he sought out acquaintanceship with Gavin and Rosaline, and they did get to know him. Mm-hmm. Quite and, intimate. 
Infamously, even. <laughs> yes, infamously.、Um, he did end up becoming a guest at their, you know, soirees and stuff. And he himself had a propensity toward studying the occult and being deeply、uh, influenced by an occult lifestyle, whatever that means to somebody.、Mm-hmm. But, you know, he collected.、Um, Very unique and enchanting masks and robes and all sorts of other subversive materials.、Mm. <laughs> um, and it did turn out that there was an evolution toward a three way relationship between Mr.、Uh, Guzens and I think that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah.、Um, I mean, safe enough. Yeah. <laughs> Goosens, I respectfully、Goosens. refer to him.、Uh, My apologies if the pronunciation is incorrect. If the estate of Sir Goosens is <laughs>、<Right> . <laughs> offended by it.、Um, and、uh, this definitely was the massive break in the levy, so to speak. <laughs> it was fascinating to、uh, some of his correspondence was actually included in the materials、mm-hmm. that was、uh, stolen, as I say. Yes.、Um, when they had done this. Search. Yes. And、um, the correspondence that has become public alludes to various sex magic yes.、Um, workings and whatnot. And at a distance, when he'd be traveling, they'd be doing astral projection、mm-hmm. uh, work where they would meet up. Yes. And here's the thing Rosaline's work as an artist was very much informed by、uh, engaging in deliberate trance states. Mm-hmm. Entering into、um, the interdimensional within herself, where she believed, you know, the root of all of the gods and, and、uh, the mysteries of creation resided.、Mm-hmm. And that she had almost like this、um, mirrored self. It kind of reminds me of the microcosm and the macrocosm. Yeah. The microcosmic temple and then mirrored in the macrocosmic. Yeah. In kind, in turn. Um, and these were the visions that she would translate onto canvas. And they were, if anyone is in love with colorist sensibilities, her works are absolutely、uh, luxurious. They do always seem, well, not always necessarily, but、uh, generally, I should say, they generally seem to have this.、Um, The images have this kind of feeling of force coming out、mm-hmm. of the body and going ascending to higher,、mm-hmm. towards higher states. And then you can see、yes. all the, the states on the journey there. And like dimensions within dimensions.、Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you get this. She did this one personification of, of the god of fire.、Mm-hmm. And within the god his- of hellfire? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I bring、um, you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent segue.、Um, uh, it, it, with the, the vignette of what looks like witches dancing around a bonfire on the forehead of the god of fire. You know what? And it's talking about this、uh, is making me think that's who her art reminds me of. Not, I hate comparing because it's not really yeah, a comparison. I, I understand what But, you speak、uh, of. But Lady Frida Harris, though. Exactly. You've read my mind. You、mm-hmm. had a total third eye moment through the God of Fire. <laughs> <laughs>、um, because if you look at Rosaline Norton's 
park, she has a lot of the geometrical lines and curves of that, the force of nature manifesting itself before your eyes. And you see a lot of that in Lady Frida Harris's deck. Absolutely, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, you can almost uh, sense that she must have started with vague, abstract geometrical shapes Mm -hmm. and then created images of bodies overlaying that and following with the flow of the line and that sort of thing. Yes, so very um, luxurious Mm -hmm. imagery. A lot of um, multiple, multiple eyes on the body, you get limbs that are turning into serpents. You get these sort of amazing fusions mm. between animal forms and human forms. And a lot of which I relate to, like a lot of my paintings have similar anthropomorphic archetypal, um, the blending of the human and the animal, mm-hmm. which we are. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> But it's a very healthy, it's a very healthy love of the 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 force of nature in its yeah. untamed wild manifestation yeah there's um it, it's bringing to mind i mean there's this is a good way of describing all of her work but one that's springing to mind uh, i don't remember finding it in this particular book but i think it was in the documentary was uh, is it made me think of uh, a f- more feminized version of baphomet yes and it was really uh uh, really captures the essence of of that kind of. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it may have been the painting uh, called Individuation. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, I mean, Individuation is a really fascinating one, mm-hmm. uh, regardless. Uh, and it um, has the Ouroboros. Yeah, in the background. I'm trying to remember if that's the one that has Janico, um, which incidentally, it's spelt like Janicot. But uh, I think probably the pronunciation was something like Janico. Yeah, it seems like a French French word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a Basque deity that uh, we can relate to the Roman god Janus. So this is like January and and the doorway and, and... Oh, that's interesting. Almost like a guardian of the liminal dimensions. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is pretty neat. And I think... uh, the way I don't know if that's individuation is the one where Janico is looking over her shoulder as she. No, that's another one altogether as well, and I believe it is called Janico, mm. where he or this entity. Is, uh, it's almost like a entity. It's almost like a guardian angel kind yeah. of peering over her shoulder, but it's mm-hmm. like a horned figure. With, yes, uh, I think all of her creations tend towards having her mm-hmm. favorite eyebrows that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love her eyebrows like as somebody that draws my eyebrows in I'm just like wow that she's got some <laughs> she's got some game there <laughs> <laughs> so um so if you figure here's all this controversy we're now heading toward 1957 unfortunately her relations with um this Masterful, fine composer falls apart. Um, And simultaneously, her relationship with Gavin starts to crumble. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of loss that she had to face for being true to her artistic self. She never apologized about her art, Mm -hmm. ever, which I'm so proud of her for. Um, She didn't feel she was doing anything wrong, Mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Nor was she doing anything wrong, Um, that's true. Exactly. So... 
um, yeah, it, it was an unfortunate split. And what ended up happening for Rosalind Norton was she just ended up fully embracing the the public's desire to see who the Witch of King's Cross was. So she just, it was one of those things that, um, it, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hmm. She ended up embracing this archetype and absorbing it into herself full on mm-hmm. and started uh, using the journalistic sort of uh, modus operandi, I guess, mm-hmm. against them. It's like, you want to see a witch? Well, look at my witch hat. She would have that stereotypical <laughs> witch hat on. Come into my place. I'll show you a ritual. Um, you know, I make a living by selling spells and curses, you know. So, unfortunately, I have, I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah, I feel that she had to almost become a caricature in order to fend off attacks. In some ways, it worked. The vehemence with which the papers would always strive to dig dirt on her mm-hmm. started to subside. It was almost like they could sense that she was mocking back. Mm. And they didn't quite like that too much. <laughs> so, um, and I think you and I talked about this earlier. Yeah. What I feel bittersweet about is that here's this brilliant, brilliant artist. I think she's magnificent. And I think her inner work was constantly being interrupted by these external distractions and these forces that could not let her futuristic voice help them to liberate themselves yeah it kind of took her away from the ability to just concentrate on being authentic Mm -hmm. and starting to wear a mask yes she definitely started to wear a mask and uh i believe her depths were protected that way perhaps Mm. because uh by the time her all of her fallout happens with all of her most beloved people very much like Cameron, she goes deeply into a life of reclusive existence. Mm-hmm. And it becomes her and her art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with, uh, you mentioned her break, the breakdown of the relationship between her and Gavin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gavin, uh, it seems that he was always suffering with uh, schizophrenia. Yes, he definitely at some point was uh, diagnosed medically as mm-hmm. schizophrenic. And he felt that she was the only person that ever truly saw his sacred essence and let him feel free to be himself, Mm -hmm. which I think he did for her as well. So all of these other parties, like who are all these extra chefs in the kitchen, you know, Mm. like with your projections of the news headlines and these cops and like, I think all of the chaos finally uh, took its toll. Yeah, I think... um I was saying earlier when we were talking about it, it seems like when you uh, become defined by being an adversary to something, mm-hmm. then uh, that that can make you it put you in a bit of a symbiotic relationship where yes. you need to have that thing that you're an adversary to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I feel that way. That that's a, a trap that a lot of people fall into. Um, yes, you know. Especially in in politically <laughs> yes. heated climes and yeah. whatnot. Um, but so this would be you know fast forwarding to around um, 
1967. I mean, she left and then came back. It was that same sort of thing that Cameron did, I noticed. Hmm. Uh, by 1967, she took residence uh, in yet another derelict um, building uh, in Darlinghurst and then moved to a flat in Whitby um, in Roslyn Gardens. <laughs> I used to live in Whitby and Rosalind Road. Oh, that is insane. <laughs> but this is Whitby in Ontario. <laughs> it's a little bit, uh, another location. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, who she took residence with were her pets, you know, her rat and her cat and her... Um, bat. Oh, wait, no, no bat. <laughs> I don't think she would have opposed having a bat, but... Um, <laughs> No bat's blood, though. There was no, <laughs> an anecdote and, about and somebody... That's the thing. That's the thing that's so wild. Like, this constant statement about her being, like, sacrificing animals and being mm. a devil worshipper, this deeply disturbed her. She's like, animals are my best friends. Yeah. They are the only source of peace in my life. And to even have these projected... Um, stereotypes you know scrawled across uh, newspapers it really deeply upset her mm -hmm. you know so i could see where she would uh, as you say kind of mock the news media and mm -hmm. she could still be doing whatever she's doing without any worry about that unfortunately what we end up with looking back to try and understand her mm -hmm. is what you know <laughs> the media tends to leave behind yes so um with all of that, eventually the media um, circus subsided, and she proceeded to continue uh, working in the arts until the end of her days. She did live to be about 62, mm -hmm. um, and at which point she, she became really sick mm. and sadly passed away thereafter. Uh, but uh, not without, I believe... Her work was purchased um, after her life. Her legacy was protected and purchased by a patron. I cannot recall who. Uh, for this mere total, like this frugal total of 8,000 pounds, hmm. her body of work. The only saving grace I see in that is that her legacy was protected. Yeah. So, uh, and... We spoke of this earlier, how important this is, given the fact that at some point during her exhibition years, somehow the police did manage to receive permission not only to seize some of her works in her exhibits, but to actually burn them. Oh, yeah. Some of her works were physically burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, being treated like pornography. Yes. Uh, so. Being such a... Uh, <laughs> it's funny to look back from today, considering how uh, uh, different things are nowadays. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we saw this happen to Marjorie Cameron as well. The whole yeah. idea of obscenity and yeah. pornography being used as excuses for destruction. And it's definitely lives. more of a statement about the malaise of our society Mm -hmm. The malaise of society that is projected upon people that live more dangerously or yeah. in a liberated way as one with their with their shadow aspects. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's bizarre to me to think why adults showing things to other adults 
should be so problematic when mm -hmm. you're dealing with art like this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like this is being shown in children to children in schools or something like that. Yeah. You're just dealing with adults who start losing their shit over it. Yeah, it's pretty profound. And mm -hmm. it's, um, Rosaline did end up sticking to her understanding of being the daughter of Pan and worshipping the natural life force in the night, etc., unto the end of her days. And on her deathbed was quoted as saying, um, I came into the world bravely, and I will go out bravely. Hmm. So she was completely dedicated to her conviction hmm. to the end, which is just so inspiring. And interestingly enough, a plaque was dedicated to her on uh, Darlinghurst Road, referring to her place of residence, saying, herein uh, resided the Witch of King's Cross. Mm. You know, this whole sort of um, final exaltation <laughs> instead of a damning, you know, newspaper yeah. article. <laughs> um, so in many ways, yet again, we have a fine artist that fulfilled her will on earth. Mm-hmm. And we're still talking about her today. That's right. Even if uh, it seems as though... Uh, I think the documentary that I, that I was watching, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it was in a series of uh, forgotten lives. But Interesting. far from forgotten. Well, and it's a testament, too, to the work that you and I are doing, where we want to try to exalt the legacies of individuals that have fallen through the cracks of... Mm -hmm the occult Western esoteric tradition. Mm -hmm. um, Rosaline is now seen very much in the same realm as Austin Osmond Spare as an individual that devoted their art to esoteric pursuits. Mm -hmm. That very much was what she did. Yes, it's very spiritually inspired yeah. art. As you mentioned, she was uh, she would go into trance states and experiment with that. Uh, yes, and bef long before she was known as the witch of King's mm -hmm. Cross or accused of being a witch or anything like that, or even involved in in these uh, parties and things, she was experimenting with trance. And uh, yes, um, there, there's an anecdote I think her sister had about her having been. Um, spending three days straight in trance or something like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> and it was to, of course, merge with her inner godhead. Mm -hmm. That whole, again, microcosm, macrocosm, yeah. mirror. Her work definitely had an aspiration that was... Uh, I don't think it was as one-dimensional as this whole sort of like hokey witchy stuff that the newspapers were trying to paint her out to be clearly yeah she had very mystical calling to fulfill her will on earth as a visionary and uh as a creatrix yeah yeah i mean if you just take away all that and just look at the art that's right that it, it can provide you with a visionary experience in and of itself mm -hmm. i think well, thank you so much for joining me, Rosemary, and, and thank you for joining us, Rosaline. Thank you. You've disappeared for the time being. Yeah. The thunder has ceased, but it reverberates in the macrocosm. <laughs> and in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you. 93. 93.
Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.